0: This morning we continue our study of the book of Ephesians, we're in chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, on page 920 of the church Bible, if you have that Bible. Is it just me, or has it also seemed to you as though extraordinary amounts of abusive leadership have been exposed in recent years to give just two of the most recent examples there's the january 6th congressional hearings there is a devastating report that came out a few months ago about the southern baptist convention documenting decades of sexual abuse and cover-up among pastors and leaders Have you felt like it's become harder and harder to trust your leaders in the workplace, in the government, in the church? Have you found your skepticism toward authority figures to increase along with the culture's broad mistrust of people in power? Or maybe you have concerns with authority that go in the opposite direction because you have held one or more positions of authority yourself and you fear making any mistakes lest the online lynch mobs make their way to you and string up your canceled reputation on the noose of their spite and envy. This morning I have some good news for each of you. Because our text from Ephesians chapter 6 provides the solution to both of these issues. This brief yet profound passage will show us the answer to both the abuse of authority and the rejection of authority. It does so by presenting a simple truth that if it were believed and practiced, would utterly transform human societies. That truth is the main thing I wish to persuade you of today. That truth is that Christians are servants of Christ first and servants or masters to men second. That's it. I repeat, Christians are servants of Christ first, and servants or masters to men second. I'd like to show you from Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, how this truth would transform society. I would like to show you how Jesus solves our questions of authority. In order to do so, as you can see on your outline in the bulletin, we must begin with the fact that we are all servants or masters to men, and then we'll see how Christians are also servants of Christ, and so finally we'll consider which one of those must come first and why. That's where we're heading this morning. Let me pray so we can dive in. To our text. Lord Jesus, whoever rules in any realm, the kingdom is yours. They only rule by commission from you and as substitutes under you. You are the supreme governor of them all. You are exalted as head above all. Everything is yours, all that is in the heaven and in the earth, yours. Amen. As I now read our text, please listen for how the author expects servants and masters to go about their duties. Ephesians 6 verses 5 through 9. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. The first thing that ought to be self-evident from the text is simply that we are servants and masters to men. Paul speaks in verse 5 to bond servants with a simple command that they obey their earthly masters. And then in verse 9, he speaks to those masters with a simple command to stop your threatening. Now, before I begin explaining what these things mean... I must first address a potential elephant in the room. You see, the word translated bond servants, here in verse 5 by the ESV translation that our church uses is more commonly translated as slaves. And though this was written nearly 2,000 years ago, it causes a problem for us. Because when we hear the words slaves, and masters all we can think about is racism kidnapping violence and rape we think of a lifetime sentence of prejudice dehumanization and wicked oppression for generation after generation of african people for no other reason than the color of their skin So therefore, we think of a wickedness so vile as to be worth fighting the bloodiest of wars over. And that raises a major issue for us. We read a passage like this and we wonder why does the author command slaves to obey and he does not command masters to set their slaves free. If that's what comes to mind for you when you hear about masters and slaves, that makes a lot of sense. But you need to know that that is not what this passage is talking about. And because of that, our questions would not have occurred to either the author of this text or his original audience. In particular, While ancient slavery did involve the ownership of one human by another, and that came along with the real danger for abuse when so much control is given to one person over another, those things are true. However, in general, Greco-Roman slavery, when this was written, was a different beast than what took place in the 17th through 19th centuries. Roman individuals would often voluntarily put themselves into slavery in order to either pay off a debt or to obtain an education they couldn't afford. Greco-Roman slavery was rarely a life sentence. And nearly 50% of slaves would obtain their freedom by the age of 30. Slaves who served well could advance in society or even be adopted into their master's families. So though we have made many advancements over history in the realms of human rights and ethical lending practices by Greco-Roman definitions, any of you who have saddled yourselves with school loans would be considered slaves. Any of you who have subjected yourselves to gainful employment in order to pay off such loans would be considered slaves. Any of you who pay your bills by means of obligating yourself to an employer's whims to tell you where to work, what to work on, and when to work on it would be considered slaves or bond servants. That's why the ESV uses that word bond servants, is to try to bring that idea to mind. Back then you would not have had access to Wells Fargo or Sally May. Instead you would have had the mercantile slave master down the road to help you out. So if you wonder why Paul commands slaves to obey and he does not command masters to emancipate, The reason is that most slaves would earn their freedom anyway as soon as their debts were paid. So mass emancipation wouldn't have even occurred to them in that society. With that said, we can dig into the text. This passage addresses the wholesale rejection of authority in our generation or any other generation because it simply presumes the existence of hierarchical structures. Paul does not shatter structures of authority. He tells us how to live wisely and to honor God in the midst of them. And that really matters because we're all servants to some people and masters to others. Maybe you're master of a classroom of students, but you're in service to a department head. Maybe you're a master to a project team while in service to the management. Or maybe you're a master of a committee of the church while in service to one or more coordinators or deacons. Or maybe you're a master of a refugee location initiative. While being a servant to a regulatory agency. We're masters to some and slaves to others. With respect to servants. Paul commands them in verse 5. To obey their masters. And to do so in a particular way. Did you catch it? Verse 5. With fear and trembling. With a sincere heart, verse 6, not by way of eye service or people pleasing, verse 7, with a good will. In short, he says that godly servants, he just says they will work really hard by committing to and taking pride in the quality of their work and by seeking the good, of the master or the household that they serve regardless of whether they are seen doing it or not this is not always the quality of work we see being done today is it for two summers while i was in college i did some manual labor in a door factory and at that job we were granted a 30-minute lunch break But most of the men in the factory would go to their lunch break by 11.45 without punching out to play ping pong in the break room. And they would make sure to punch out at noon and punch back in at 12.30 like they were supposed to, but many would go back to play ping pong until 12.45 or or even later. Unless someone came running into the break room to tell them that the plant manager was on his way to the floor. And then everyone rushes out and pretends to be doing what they were being paid to do. And this is precisely what Paul means in verse 6 by eye service. Hard work, but only while the boss is watching. Now, if only we followed Paul's instructions to servants in these verses, wouldn't the world be such a better place? We wouldn't have an unmotivated workforce, but a profoundly and internally motivated workforce. We would see far more production and innovation taking place, causing greater amounts of resources and profits that could potentially be shared with those in need. We would see more engaging classroom environments more engaging office environments and more engaging factory environments where the people are too busy helping one another or the organization to succeed to have any time left for standing around gossiping about one another rivaling one another or complaining about the management but of course such a world is not exclusively in the hands of servants to create. There is a key role the masters must play in creating such a world as well. So in verse 9, Paul commands masters to do the same to them. Do the same what? He, he, he's referring back to the last aspect of the command to servants in verse 7. Rendering service with a good will. In other words, Paul commands masters to treat servants the way they wish to be treated as masters. Masters, do you want your people to seek your welfare and the goals of your household? then you must also wish for and labor toward the good of the people you serve. This means explicitly in verse 9 that masters must stop their threatening. That doesn't mean you can't ever apply negative consequences for incompetence or disobedience. What it means is that threats And bullying must not characterize your leadership style. It is not your job as a master to show them who is boss. It is your job as a leader to show them how much you care about them and wish to see them at their best. If only more management were to follow Paul's commands here. There might be no need for labor unions. People would love serving under such leadership because who wouldn't want a boss who sees their main job as seeking the good of those under their authority? Such managers would personally take the blame for anything that goes wrong in the place of service. And such managers would refuse to take the credit for whatever succeeds in the place of service. They would be too focused on dishing the credit out to others and not letting anybody take the blame but themselves. The point in all this is that we are servants and masters to men. This is nothing to shy away from or to be embarrassed by. There is no good reason to reject authority structures altogether. Instead, we ought to live within and exercise these structures well and wisely. Be the most competent and praiseworthy servant you can be, laboring for the greater good of those you serve. And be the most magnetic and influential master you can be, remembering birthdays, Celebrating successes and laboring for the greater good of those you serve. Now all of this answers one of the questions I posed at the beginning of the sermon. Paul does not allow us to reject authority structures altogether. He calls us to be excellent to each other. Wouldn't that be amazing if the world were like this? But what would make, what would even make that possible? According to this passage, it is only when both servants and masters are guided by a larger vision, which is that we are not only servants or masters to men, we are also, point two, servants of Christ. You see, I've barely mentioned the most prevalent character in this passage. Servants are mentioned three times and masters are mentioned once. But there's another character who makes a dramatic appearance in every verse. Don't get so familiar with him that you can't see him. Verse five. As you would Christ. Verse six. As bondservants of Christ. Verse 7, as to the Lord. Verse 8, receive back from the Lord. And verse 9, he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. So in verse 5, when Paul commands servants to obey their earthly masters, there is another shadow that looms large. It is that of their heavenly master the Lord Jesus Christ. And so therefore they obey as they would Christ. And in verse 9, when Paul commands masters to do good to their servants, they are to do so with the understanding that the true master of servants is also the master of masters and he is watching Everything they do, he will judge those who do harm to their servants. And verse 8, he will return good to those who do good, regardless of whether they are bondservant or free. How does this apply, friends? Remember Jesus Christ whether you serve or supervise, whether you minister or manage, whether you labor or lead, remember that Jesus Christ cares about what you are doing. He sees what you are doing. And he will respond to what you are doing. As Matthew 25 teaches jesus will return one day and when he does he will applaud those who served him by doing good to others and he will repudiate those who failed to serve him by not doing good to others the only hope the world has for becoming an ideal place for both servants and masters is for both servants and masters to trust in Jesus as their true master. Such trust will filter down to every choice made in the daily workplace. So if you do not yet follow Jesus or consider him your master, would you please consider trusting him today? Now maybe this way of thinking is new to some of you, but... Could there be others of you who already believe this, that that we're servants of Christ and you're ready to move on? Do you find this idea that Jesus is your master somewhat elementary? I ask you, regardless of whether you have believed this or you want to believe this or you've tried to believe this, how is it working out for you? Seriously, when was the last time you actually gave thought to Jesus' role in your workplace or place of service or at your committee meeting or in your classroom? This is not about hanging Bible verses on the pinboard in your office, though you're free to do that if you want. This is really about giving yourself in service to others in the name of Jesus Christ. Because He would have you do no less. Let me put it this way. If you were not serving Christ, but you were self-consciously serving only yourself in the workplace, would your labor look any different than what it looks like now? Because as soon as we remove Christ from the picture, or even if we simply ignore Jesus Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, we have not only opened the door to abuse of power, we have recruited abuse of power to come and join the team. The fact that Master Jesus stands over and above all masters, that fact provides a serious amount of accountability. Because when a believer in Jesus Christ starts acting like they own the place, you and I should all pipe up and ask, when Jesus retired because we missed the send-off party. Believers in Jesus Christ are all servants To Jesus Christ. And if you don't yet know what you think about all this Jesus stuff, I am so grateful that you joined us this morning. You are very welcome here. And please understand that if you don't follow Jesus, you don't have this sort of protection against abusive leadership. You don't have these guide rails for your own leadership even if you don't yet trust that Jesus is that this sort of master isn't he exactly the sort of master you wish we had one who didn't blow smoke for bullies but protected everyone and rendered to all what was due to them <laughs> or maybe you're wondering while i say these things <laughs> what gives How can you say that Jesus offers protection and accountability against abusive leadership when Christians are often the ones most guilty of exercising abusive leadership? Let's go back to that report you told me about a few minutes ago. And I'm really glad you asked because that takes me to my third point. Which of these services comes first and why? Which must come first and why? The sad reason why Christian communities can see frequent and severe abuses of authority is because we end up confusing the order of things. But it should be obvious by now which one comes first. If Jesus is the king of kings and the master of masters, then I must serve him first and people only second. But how does that work out practically? What does it mean to serve Christ first and people second? We really need to get this right because sometimes people conclude that verses like this mean that Jesus has given his full authority to masters of men. And since he says that servants, verse 5, must obey masters as they would Christ, we might think that means that any and all obedience to masters will count as service to Christ. No matter who the master is or what the master asks... A servant obeys Christ by obeying their master's orders, even the ungodly or unethical ones. But this cannot be what Paul is saying. It cannot be what he's saying. In the book of Exodus, when Pharaoh commands a group of Hebrew midwives to execute baby boys as soon as they're born... The midwives refuse to obey and God blesses them for it. In the book of Daniel, when King Nebuchadnezzar commands all people to worship his golden statue, a group of young Jewish men refuse to obey the order and God preserves them when the king tries to burn them alive. This is what Paul says right here in verse 6 where he writes that servants must, at the end of the verse, do the will of God from the heart. You see, that is how servants obey their masters. It's by doing what God's will is for them, which, honestly, most of the time will be the same as what the earthly master wishes them to do. But once in a while... It will be different than what the earthly master wishes them to do. Because the earthly master never has all authority. Only Jesus does. So masters, before making any request of your subordinates, make sure to ask yourself, how would Jesus go about making that request of them? And does my tone and my expectation match what his would be? Because they serve him first and you second. And servants, Jesus does not ever want you to fudge the numbers, to commit perjury, to hide the evidence, to treat same-sex unions the same way you would treat a marriage, or to pretend that someone can alter their biological sex, even if your earthly master asks you to do so, because bond servants are servants of Christ first, they are servants of men, second, and this is the answer to our second question, the question of the abuse of authority. If only we truly served Christ first, we would all be more likely to avoid abusing our own authority. And serving Christ first would make us far more effective at resisting abuses to earthly authority that is over us. But there's good news in here. Because what Jesus wants you and me to do is to do good to each other. And verse 8 promises that whatever good you do to others will be returned to you by your master, Jesus. You see, this good news looks to the future in hope that Jesus will do someday something amazing. And you can bank on that happening because of two words in verse nine. These two words, I believe, provide our greatest source of hope in this entire passage. What must masters know as they lead? They must know that he who is both their master and yours is, here are the two words, in heaven. That might not sound like much here and today, but let me remind you of what Paul has already written in this brief letter of Ephesians. In chapter 1, he said that the resurrected Jesus got to heaven because God put him there far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, including yours, all you little masters out there. And including mine. And in chapter 4, Paul said that when Jesus got to heaven, he gave out good gifts to his people. In other words, Jesus rose from the dead to prove that he had all authority. God placed him in heaven to show everyone that he has all authority. And Jesus now uses that authority to give out good gifts to his people. Servants, you can do good to your masters. And masters, you can do good to your servants. But none of you could ever outgood the good that Jesus will do for those who serve him faithfully to the end. This sight of the future is a crucial perspective for anyone in or around a position of power. Because those in positions of power need to think more about the future than about the past. The past is helpful when you need to draw encouragement from the history of God's mighty deeds. But if all you ever think about is the past, you'll start to think only of Jesus' goodness in having given you what you've already got. But Paul knows and God knows that what will motivate you far more is the assurance that your best is yet to come. Jesus has so much more to give to those who do good now to others. So please understand that Christians are servants of Christ First, and they are servants or masters to men. Second, this truth solves our questions of authority by counteracting both rejection of authority and abuse of authority, especially among Christians. Jesus is a kind and gracious master who transforms societies into places where people are good to each other. I invite you to join me in worshiping him and serving him. This week, please consider what Jesus would have you do in your place of service to accomplish the will of God for the good of others. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we bow before You, the God and Father of all who is over all, above all, and in all. And we worship you, Lord Jesus, the one who has been exalted to the right hand of the Father to receive kingdom, your kingdom and an authority over heaven and earth. And so we bow before you, please help us, to go forth serving you first and serving one another second. May we maintain this crucial order. May the shadow of your authority loom over all that we do that it might filter down to all of our daily choices that we might be inspired and motivated to do good to one another as we do your will from the heart. We love you and we praise you. You are our God and our master in heaven and we ask that your will that is done in heaven would also be done here on earth and that your kingdom may come. We pray these things for the sake of your kingdom and your power and your glory, which are forevermore. Amen.